Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Selwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, Aaron Upoff, and missing 411 right now is Pastor David Appled, who may be joining us later. We'll find out. We've got the whole crew here, and you know what that means. It's time for another conclave. And this one is particularly special. Why is that, Zelwyn? This marks number 100, if you can believe it. (laughs) 100 episodes. I can't believe it's been a hundred already. It seems like just yesterday we started this thing, but I'm. Seems I'm like glad just to yesterday we nursed. You know, we were nursed by Romulus and founded this podcast. <laughs> just, just tremendous. Well, gentlemen, it's been a fun hundred episodes. We'll see how many uh, more we have in us, how much gas we have left in the tank, how much internet we have left, and all that, all that fun stuff coming up in these strange times. But on to more important <laughs> things. How's the weather? Aaron? Well, it's nice in New Jersey, upper 50s today. We had some rain earlier, so it's a kind of muggy outside, but a gray day with, I think, a few more ahead of us for the, the weekend. Adam, how's the gray skies of Fort Wayne? Well, they're, they're gray. I want to say more importantly that David Oppold went hiking this morning in a national park and has not been found since. And if you have any, <laughs> if you have any information that could lead to uh, the National Park Service locating him, his clothes were found neatly folded and piled. Yeah, his family would be grateful. His shoes were separately lying on a boulder in a boulder field. So uh, we would appreciate any information you might have. <laughs> but the, the Kentucky governor wants to know whether he was wearing his face mask, however. so <laughs> uh, David Appled won't be reconstructed. His face is uncovered wherever he is. <laughs> Uh, uh, pray for the Commonwealth. Uh, let's see. Uh, and Zelwyn, how is the weather in North Dakota? A little on the windy side today and cool again. Um, it was actually, I think it got below freezing during the night. So we are pretty typical spring for North Dakota and still kind of looking forward to things to warm up again. <laughs> Zelwyn's like little chilly, went outside, gutted a cow and climbed up in it. <laughs> Got to stay warm out there. (laughs) Whatever. Well, gentlemen, as is custom for the conclave, we're handling uh, listener questions. And so that's going to be fun. We've got some, I would say, very good ones coming up. You guys ready? Ready to go. Let's do it. All right. Question number one. To what degree do we subscribe to the Falmer's Almanac? Do we hold to a QIA subscription to the Almanac? Gentlemen, what do you think? Uh, that's that's a big no from me. If you're not using John Bear's almanac, I don't know what to say. Uh, you can uh, get a copy of John Bear's almanac by writing a check to the Sons of John Bear, and uh, they will send you one postpaid. So there you, you go. have to write a check. That's correct. It's been you have to write a check. Since... John Bear's Sons, P.O. Box three twenty eight, Lancaster, Pennsylvania one seven six zero eight. If you if you want one. <laughs> It just rolled off the tongue. (laughs) You know, there's the big orange farmer's almanac. There is the old farmer's almanac, which is the one that I make use of, although I do have bears actually right by me where I'm recording right now. (laughs) You know, you just got to decide. You just got to decide what you want to (laughs) do. As one does. I would subscribe Quia to it, provided there is something in it that speaks of garlic diminishing the power of magnets. (laughs) <laughs> objective fact i kind of feel like we're we're getting into a uh some sort of reform debate here about which confession we're going to subscribe to you know is this like a is this like a three forms of unity or is this like a <laughs> westminster convention i mean i don't even help me out here willie i need to know which direction to go well you know it's a question of do you want to take your information from big meteorology or <laughs> Do you want to go with, you know, the the rotation of the planets and then the stars? Yeah, uh, I, I I would bet you that La Farmer's Almanac probably believes in climate change. So that tells you all you need to know. John Bear's sons doesn't believe in climate change because they don't have a TV and you can write a check. And that's the only way you can get it. Yeah. And you guess what? If you want more, you just write a bigger check. Um, right. If you want to order things out of the Almanac, you tear a page out of it and you write it down. You put it in the mail. 
like someone who believes in America. So right now you, you support your postal service, and <laughs> it is lacking one very important thing, though. In all honesty, it does not have a hole drilled to the top left corner to hang it on a nail in your shed, barn, or workroom. It they assume you can do that. Yeah, right. You you listen to word fitly spoken. You can drill a hole. We know you can. We believe in you. <laughs> so it is very interesting, though. You know, kind of expanding on this subject, and, and we uh, joke about it a little bit, but your grandparents and parents were using the almanac to plant, and guess what? They were hardy folk, probably going to outlive you the way things are going. <laughs> they were healthy, they were strong, and they knew they knew when to plant. It's all very interesting. The Missouri Synod printed, in our forgotten era, the Missouri Synod printed almanacs, mm-hmm. too, huh. called the American yep. Lutheran Calendar, with the, with the signs of the moon and the lunar signs, advice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The lunar signs are very big in um, determining when to plant and when would be right to plant. The lunar calendar, not the lunar calendar, but the lunar signs in an almanac calendar were a staple of people, English, German, you know, whatever Americans you want to you want to point yeah. toward. Uh, it crossed language uh, boundaries. Was not considered taboo either because it's not the same thing as a horoscope or something like that. And so, yeah, a very good point. Uh, long forgotten. And now what do we have? Our own insurance companies and no almanacs. <laughs> Which way, Lutheran oh, man? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, we have. We, we, we traded somewhere along the way. So, yeah, I mean, very, very interesting. You know, I really, you know, I think John Bear is going to be really surprised with all the tens of checks they're going to get now. Ten, so. Tens <laughs> of checks from throughout the Middle West. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> So that's that's our stance on the on the almanac. Aaron, how are you using the almanac over in New Jersey? I'm afraid we don't have it over here anymore. State of New Jersey will not allow it in side of its borders. <laughs> you have to go to a, you have to go uh, west of the Delaware to get it. <laughs> no mail may come into New Jersey right now. And speaking of which, um, since we're recording this during the middle of whatever this is, how's your states doing? Zell, when you're free, I'm just going to answer for you. Well, and we're actually opening up even more starting tomorrow, which would be what the first day of May when after recording. So, yeah, we're we're even more free after this. So, long live North Dakota! Best. Hey, Dakota. speaking of speaking of first day of May and <laughs> almanacs, it is May Day tomorrow. I know Adam's excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need you need to be blasting Magpie Lane's rendition of the May song on May Day. It might not be a particular ethnic holiday for you, the listener. So we leave that up to you. Unlike the almanac question, this is an open question. <laughs> Summer is a coming in, right? So Aaron, pretty much locked down in Jersey over there? Yeah, but our rules are not as draconian as Illinois are right now, from my understanding. Good old JB is a little more intense than Governor Murphy here. Uh, and you still see a lot of people. I did a a funeral for someone a few days ago who died of the virus and there were plenty of people out on the roads. So, uh, essential workers, I assume all, but. Hmm. Right. Well, good to hear that things are in your economic zone or a little bit uh, less restricted. And Adam, I believe Indiana is starting to open up a little bit more. Yeah. I don't think we're going to be as fast as, you know, Oklahoma or the Dakotas, but a lot faster than Illinois. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm just going to be sitting here. I'll see you guys in December sometime. Maybe next symposia I can come out and uh, so properly social distance with you. Yeah, this is... What a state. What a state. It's not so bad. All I'm saying is secession. I know you've got a Lincoln log cabin every half mile, but just hear me out. It's good music, cool flag, free. Just secede. Just give it a shot. Can we devote an you know, episode in the future to how Willie feels about the fact that Kentucky was a union state? Not true. <laughs> ne- neutral and a divided government, but fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> to put a fine point on it. I, t- I take no position on the uh, Civil War or any wars or anything controversial that's ever happened. I am neutral on everything. <laughs> a flip-flopper, if you will. <laughs> right. Fence rider. <laughs> Like a senator from Utah or something like that. (laughs) Anyway, so, yeah, that being said, 
All right. Well, I lost my lost my train of thought thinking about J.B. Pritzker, uh, Confederate flags, and controversial opinions. So, but that's what the conclave is all about. <laughs> all right, guys. So that's enough on the farmer's almanac. So we're going to go on to the next one. This is one that comes up a lot. Uh, let's discuss the different views or doctrines of church and ministry that are present in Lutheranism. Let's just start with the beginning. At the beginning of Lutheranism, what did church and ministry look like? I think when we're dealing with the issue of church and ministry, especially in the time of the Reformation, I, I think you're getting a lot of the kind of holdovers from the, the medieval period. So, you know, you have similar kind of views, but it's quickly shifting because uh, shortly afterward, uh, you have the rise of the consistory and uh, that idea of church governance and church and ministry, where where the church becomes a kind of appendage of the, the, the state, appendage of the government. And I think that is something, and so you have a kind of a model of, of church, of the ministry, which does become like you say, a, a something of a part of the state as well. How do you want to, to break that down? I mean, that's that's fair. I mean, that is true. And I think the question's more, more going at, it's probably more concerned about questions of pastoral authority. Okay. Because we end up with congregationalism in the Missouri Synod, at least a form of it. Right. And so when we hear church and ministry in the LCMS, I think that's typically what we kind of go towards. So we've gone from you know, an Episcopalian style polity in Europe. Right. Or I should say Episcopal, not Episcopalian, but you know what I mean? We have bishops. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And then we have that in the new world. I mean, I'm assuming it's that way. Well, it gets kind of tricky um, in New York and stuff like that, I guess a little bit, but you've still got bishops doing stuff and sending. And then you get the second wave, the second big wave of German immigrants, which would include, uh, Walther and crew, who eventually come over with a bishop, find themselves without a bishop, thus our polity is born. Realize that's, a, that's the most Cliff's Notes version of that I could come up with. Right. So so you're thinking that, I mean, like you said, this is the whole question, and maybe we'll have to address the question again at a later date once we have a little bit more information. But if we're dealing with the question of, you know, where does the pastoral authority come from? I do think that that's still related to the question of polity in general. Certainly, yeah. But it is it is a question of, you know, do we does the pastor derive his authority to do what he does from the congregation or does he derive it from somewhere else? I mean, I suppose that's the the most basic question for Missouri, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think you have in many different Lutheran bodies in the United States the same mixture of some more hierarchical heritage in structure where these questions of pastoral authority are kind of undisputed. You get this in different ethnic mm-hmm. groups. Anybody that comes from a state church, the pastor is going to belong to a higher social class and be some form of officially government approved functionary within that society, that country. The reason that usually breaks down in the United States is simply because that is not the socioeconomic structure that anyone comes to. And so even in even in situations where the understanding, both the theological understanding and the practical functioning of the pastoral office was very hierarchical, such as in the Buffalo Synod, which disputed church and ministry with Missouri fervently, which is why Walther wrote the voice of our church, the voice of our churches in the matter of church and, and ministry or, or office and ministry. The Buffalo Synod it functions episcopally as long as its founder is alive, Grabau. Once he dies, however, they become almost immediately more, you might say, Presbyterian or synodical. And I'm, I'm saying that because a lot of groups, including the Missouri Synod, are at pains to say, we're not actually congregationalist the way we function. Because, for instance, the Missouri Synod is an interconnected group that involves the congregations and then all of these positions and some institutions, mainly educational back then, that are completely con- like run by clergymen. This is not quite the same thing as like some of the Norwegian groups that were extremely congregationalist and had almost nothing in common with each other a modern day parallel might be like the LCMC. So there's a bunch of different, uh, there's a bunch of different kind of arrangements 
everyone becomes somewhat more democratic in function, even when the theology doesn't really support that necessarily, as in the case of the Buffalo Synod or also the Iowa Synod. So I think part of the issue with church and ministry is not answering, okay, what is our doctrine of the ministry? Because does the pastor have to be called and ordained? That's relatively uncontroversial. Is he the one who alone is pretty much always preaching and conducting the sacrament? Yes. A lot of those things are not functionally controversial in American Lutheranism. They're usually polity questions that are controversial. And I think that's because a lot of these synods have have a great deal of difficulty understanding how to explain to themselves what is happening in America because they're used to the pastor just having social social position and authority in Europe. Right. And and you get and quickly the polity adapts to the culture um right. rather rapidly. And to where even though we have church and like Walter's church and ministry is an officialish document in the Missouri Synod, it's the way things are managed today isn't necessarily the way they were in Walter's day. Right. And, exactly. And, and the variety of governance, I mean, in the synods is very interesting. I mean, even Gerberding paints a portrait of pastoral authority in church organization. That's rather different from the LCMS, but also in many ways different from the European model as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's born almost of necessity. Right. And in a lot of cases, I mean, we don't need to get into, you know, deep Missouri history or anything, because we've covered that a a lot here about why, you know, what happened with Bishop Stephan and and everything like that. It it is interesting that Walter seems to envision his polity working a bit differently simply because it it is exercised differently in a German environment versus a modern American environment. Yeah, there are are certain presuppositions that goes along with it. And and so that's why it it just looks so if you look at what the actual, say, voters assemblies look like at the time of Walter, it is markedly different from what we have today. Democracy is still there. Voting is still there. But the tenor and even the seating arrangements are different to say nothing of who was allowed to vote. You know, (laughs) that was a big difference, but that's not been that long ago. So in the big, but the two big synods that we'll think, if if we want to say that, you have the Missouri Synod and the ELCA have very different polities. And then there's the differences between the Wisconsin Synod and the Missouri Synod, which um, are very similar in some ways, but then perhaps begin to differ on church and ministry. Even though that didn't divide us in the 19th century, it certainly divides us today. It's going to happen, fam. We're going to get that synodical conference back together. I can feel it. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, time doesn't permit us to talk about, I mean, a lot of the, there are micro synods that are managed more along Waltherian lines. There are micro synods with bishops, as it were. So it all kind of shakes out. It's basically whichever, whatever a synod wants to do. And I'm not making a judgment whether that's right or wrong. That just is, is what it is. Um, you can functionally set up a synod on your own and govern it however you want to in the current year. Sorry, Adam, you were going to say. I was just going to say on the difference between Missouri and the ELCA at this point, outwardly, the ELCA has many more Episcopal and even specifically capital E Episcopalian trappings surrounding what we call district presidents. They call bishops. They generally wear fancy clothes uniformly. You know, they might be male or female, but they're always dressed, quote, traditionally. And they have a lot more power than Missouri Synod District presidents have. One of the things to notice is that Missouri has, in a certain sense, retained an older form of governance in American Lutheranism, which is to give relatively large leeway to the local pastor. Whereas the thing that the ELCA has in common with a lot of other mainline denominations is that the higher up you go in sort of the clerical food chain, the more bureaucratic everything is. A lot of their bishops, uh, so, several that I know of, are were you know working in the corporate world before they became pastors, and they kind of run things that way. So when you're thinking about church and ministry, there's a lot more going on here than just what happened in the 18th or 19th century. There's also the fact that church, American church, tends to imitate business at this point. And that goes on even in liberal churches that you don't think of as associated with, you know, American evangelicalism and big box stuff. 
Hmm. Yeah, very well said. All right. Well, if you guys want to, uh, listeners, if you want to know more or you want us to tackle some specific topics on this in later episodes, just uh, leave a comment or give us a message. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be right back after this. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, the one gathering dust, word fitly spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, 100th episode, Conclave. And now we've got the whole, whole crew with us. Uh, David Appled has returned from his sojourn in the wilderness. David, how was your vision quest? Uh, I received a few visions. I attained a certain level that I'm uh, not really at liberty to discuss. Things were uttered to me that cannot be spoken, but I'm, I'm, I'm here for you now. <laughs> Whether in the body or out of the body, yeah. he doesn't know. right. Well, good to have you. Real quick, how is the weather in Kentucky? Beautiful. It's gorgeous right now. 70 degrees. We've got sunshine. I think it's going to get up into the 80s this weekend. We might even have to turn on the air conditioning. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, sounds nice. Well, gentlemen, the next question is a good one. We live in a great country, a country that's ostensibly free. Um, with a lot of land to travel, a lot of ground to cover. And with that said, I ask you, is it possible for circuit riding and itinerant preaching to make a comeback? Zellwin, I'm actually going to throw that one to you. <laughs> I honestly think that it could. I, the, the thing about uh, being a circuit rider or being an itinerant preacher is, is you really just got to have the drive to do it. You know, that that kind of get up and go kind of self-starting motivation. But as a as a principal, I certainly think that it could because what's stopping you from going into the next town over, for example, and, you know, setting up a, a service there or, you know, preaching there on occasion, you know, you'd have to announce it, of course, but I, I certainly think that it's possible. Would you make a distinction between circuit riding and, the new uh, another thing that's making a comeback the uh, like triple and quad parish arrangements would you make a distinction there or are they virtually synonymous um th- i don't think they're synonymous because when you're dealing with like a multi point especially three or four churches you're dealing with a very settled kind of pattern and you know there's the, the arrangement there there's there were churches that were there before and because of circumstances they've kind of declined I think circuit riding or uh, itinerant preaching would be more a church planting kind of endeavor, which, again, I, th- I think is certainly possible. But that being said, the, the pastor who serves three or four congregations is certainly getting a taste of the, the work involved, certainly. Yeah, I mean, the, the preaching station, you know, could well make a comeback as part of this. And we're starting to see uh, kind of the fire of the preaching station start to start to flare up again. Sometimes people get the wrong idea that the circuit rider is exclusively Methodist, but we had some good Lutheran boys out doing it too during those days. Well, I mean, the the congregation that I serve now were both founded by essentially Lutheran circuit riders. In fact, one of the the synodical presidents was, I think, Fotenhauer, I think was one of the ones in the Dakotas. Mm -hmm. Is that right, Adam? That's right. And so his work, along with a lot of other missionaries coming out of Minnesota and, you know, serving, you know, multiple stations, I think, at, and especially over in the East, they were serving like 10 to 12 
you know, stations with one man. It was it was Lutheran and it was phenomenal. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not to be confused with fabulous. That's a totally different adjective. Now, when we think of circuit riding and itinerant, and itinerant preaching, we we tend to think of the West, the original West, especially. But uh, you know. It, there's work to be done in the East, like for Mr. Uphoff, or even in Kentucky, which is not exactly a hotbed of confessional Lutheranism. Right, David? Uh, it's not a hotbed, uh, no. Yeah. Aaron, <laughs> what what do you think about, like in a setting like where you're at, uh, where they filmed most of The Sopranos, do you think that there could be a some kind of circuit riding model for an urban area like that? I think there could. One of the weird things about it out here is it's a very dense state as everybody knows the most densely populated state in the union and what you have is people travel you know sometimes an hour or two for their work so they're used to commuting and even though the churches you know might be a little ways away from each other folks are already used to driving to get to the congregation they prefer to go so it's not like you know where Zelwyn is where 20 30 miles over there's a town and you know, there's not a Lutheran church, you know, for, you know, 30 mile radius or anything where there's, there's enough around here. And we, like my members of my congregation, most of them drive past other Missouri Synod churches to come here. So, I mean, it's certainly mm-hmm. possible, but you already have people going great distances just to go to the church of their, their cho- choice. Mm. Well, isn't there a factor here if the, uh, if the great clergy shortage of 1990 ever comes to pass? I mean, We've been we've been talking about the shortage of clergy for a long time. And I mean, if you look at the numbers, it does make sense that, yeah, there's going to be a shortage. But until that happens, you know, you're still going to have the you're going to have the retired pastor who could be who who could and does serve uh, some of these smaller congregations that that would make up kind of a circuit riding situation that would have to be kind of pressed on us by necessity. And until that happens, I don't see it really taking shape. Hmm. I think I, I guess I think it de- it depends on what you're thinking of the circuit rider doing. Usually in the Missouri Synod, when guys behaved that way, they were doing it to develop missions that would develop into churches. If it's understood as sort of like a a, a way of covering a vacant pastoral posts or pastoral posts that you know in yeah, 1900 sure. could have afforded a pastor, but with over basically personnel overhead can't afford a pastor now, then that's a different, that's a different thing. And I think you're right. That will happen more slowly, but as a way of developing missions and, and congregations, I think it could happen practically anywhere pretty much right now. You just have to kind of know like, well, where do people go? Because people are not necessarily going to travel the same distances in uh, New Hampshire that they do in New Jersey. Just yeah, I, I mean, don't fig- know. you know, f- you know, figure out why this one community is here that doesn't have a church. Right. How does that happen? Can we go into it and and to try something? And I think um, a lot of talk of modern circuit riding is bogged down by modern church planting mantras, and a lot of the modern church planting books are all focused or, or largely focused upon the business aspect. How can we make this a sustainable? congregation in the monetary sense you know how can we keep the lights on how can we keep it going how can we attract people in and i think you have to understand that there is a risk if we want to say it i mean there's there's no assumption that you'll necessarily grow a great church here and the circuit riders depending on denomination were not as into advertising as such it was much more a service of a word-oriented kind of approach. Now, there are plenty of church planters that are. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that how much of the discussion in modern church planting is the logistics of it, and often the financial logistics. Other, You know, outside of the most appropriate thing, which is everyone needs the gospel. Why isn't there a church here? Should we plant a church here? We also just need to be to be reminded that we go out, we preach the word, and it will bear fruit. And so the circuit rider has to be prepared for failure. And one of the advantages to the old circuit riding model was there just wasn't a lot of overhead other than the preacher's traveling expenses and his salary. 
Right. You know, you, you weren't automatically looking at rent immediately, for example, or, or, or what's the new model um, where you basically have a van with all of your church equipment and you, you move it in and out each week. Yeah. Nothing inherently wrong with those, but the old circuit riding model is much more stripped down, partially as an accident of history, but also tactically. They could move. They were very they were much more mobile in a way that even a mobile church isn't. You don't need teamsters to pack things up. Right. Right. Uh, so so it is a it's just a it there are similarities, there are differences in the way we approach church planting, if we can use I mean, even church planting is a modern term. A relatively new term, and so yeah, I absolutely agree, Adam. Uh, that, you know, it could be done anywhere. It it takes just wisdom and discernment and and some grit. When Adam did his church plant in Myerstown, what made you decide to do Myerstown? I mean, that's kind of a side question, but sort of connected. Well, it was it was basically an available space that was easy to use for worship and didn't involve. Hardly at all, anyway. It didn't involve being a portable church, but that that's another example where um, if you're going to do in kind of Missourian terms, what I did would be called like a preaching station because I didn't have to be itinerant for a while, which is what happened a lot of times in the settling of the Midwest and the and the Great Plains. That's a preaching station model. It's cheap because all all I have to do is get there and and you can do church it's very cheap and it's sustainable because it doesn't have to be anything big right then. I think the, one of the big differences between the circuit riders for whom the term was invented, the Methodists, and then also um, to some extent, the Baptists used some of the same model in the Southern Campbellites Highlands. Campbellites did, the Mormons did, ever did. It was the thing to do in the 19th century. The, the difference is that if you look at the Church of England and then what becomes the Episcopal Church after the Revolution, they are the closest that you can get to something like a modern denomination with bureaucracy and overhead and complicated approval processes. And that makes it all really difficult to do this. Whereas that process in the Missouri Synod was much more stripped down. Certainly, you didn't have to go to another country like in colonial America to get ordained. You basically just had to get a call. And they would send guys out of seminary after two years, three years sometimes, because uh, they have to right. go, you know. So there are complaints about, oh, the, these guys are supposed to have more education, but they get sent anyway because they have the call and they need to go. So one of the big things, I think one of the takeaways is the reason that the South, which ethnically should largely be Anglican, is not, is because the circuit riders basically ran rings around people that were kind of locked into... A, a, a literally parochial way of thinking. I have my settled parish. I have everything I need. We've got it paid for. We've got everything stamped, signed, sealed, and approved. And they couldn't really think about, well, what do we do about all the people that don't live within this system already? Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is part of it. I mean, yeah, the, the established religion there, you know, um, you could also argue the Presbyterians and the more traditional Baptists even had a had a big influence on stopping a lot of the extremes in parts of the South. Once you get to the Appalachians, it's a little bit tricky. And then, of course, west of that is the new frontier. And there's virtually no accountability for the circuit riders beyond that point. So that is very interesting. And maybe we should just dedicate a whole episode to this because we're going to we're going to take up the next two segments if we're not careful. <laughs> Yeah, but it it is very um, absolutely right. So, um, in summary, we agree that circuit riding today is possible, but it might look a little bit different, just because we have the horseless carriage and all that, and other things. Um, but you know, speaking of circuit riding and getting the gospel out, right now, nearly every Missouri Synod pastor is using some form of streaming in place of a service or supplementing services with streaming. Yeah, I and would, I was actually ahead, going, I was actually going to address this very question as kind of a transition between these topics because I think they're related. I'm I'm willing to argue, and maybe you guys will disagree with me, that I don't think that streaming per se should be seen as a kind of digital circuit writing, because if any if anything, this digital streaming kind of or you know video service means I'm just, you just more or less become a face on the screen without any real interaction with the people and you know who are watching. And I think that there's there's a difficulty there because circuit writing even in its 
most wild sense, you know, thinking like, you know, truly being itinerant, you're still dealing with real people and, you know, face to face. And so yeah. I, I'm afraid if, if we tend to think of this digital age as a kind of digital circuit writing, I'm afraid it's just going to reinforce the kind of, I think, how do you term it? Parochialness, the kind of settledness that we're trying to perpetuate. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's also just not how we're meant to be. It's just not it's not a healthy form of communication. I mean, even the phone call is different from looking someone in the eye or right. embracing someone. There is a difference. And and so uh you can't can't say otherwise. And so that being said, that brings us to our our next question, uh, which has to do with streaming confession and absolution. Is a streamed absolution an absolution? Don't everybody jump in at once. Okay. <laughs> Let's put it this way, because everybody's hesitant to to answer it. Now, here is the reality, though. Confession is two parts. Confession, okay, and absolution. Hearing a confession, I would argue, is rather important. That hearing what is confessed on behalf uh, of the pastor is is an important part of that. Granted, things are a little bit confused for us now because... Public confession and absolution is the norm for American Lutheranism at this point and not private confession and absolution. But it is hard for the pastor to hear that confession online or over the airwaves or whatever we're supposed to use. So I think that that, at the very least, does bring a difficulty into online confession and absolution. So I don't think it's that it's that cut and dry as to say, well, it's just fine because he speaks the words there. Well, then, okay. Then we're roped into the debate over uh, digital Lord's Supper or something like that. Well, or if I, you could rig up some sort of squirt gun to a switch <laughs> somewhere, would that still be a baptism? Uh, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think I think when what you're struggling with, Willie, is kind of the the, the struggle that we have with confession and absolution to begin with, which exactly. is wh- which is why this this whole question comes up at all. You know. If we don't actually hear a specific confession, are we, you know, is that, I, I, I mean, is that, is that the way that we want to operate? Because, you know, I could confess any number of things without actually having to confess to anything, if that makes sure. any sense. And, but I think if you're going to say that the public confession absolution is in fact a thing, I don't know, I, I, I find it difficult to say that that you couldn't have it over. Well, I mean, it becomes tricky too, because, okay, then what of a pre-recorded service? Right. Is it just automatically good again? And see, here's the problem with this to try and say, yes, it is. No, it isn't. The fact that it elicits so much debate and so much confusion is proof that it might not be the best practice. Is it necessary for an online service? That's the other question too. Um, Can we have a service of the word without it? The answer is yes. Yes, we can. Right. Um, and and so if it does cause confusion and doubt, then why why introduce it? I, I understand why people, and I'm not faulting the pastors who do, because I understand that what they're trying to build is a consistency between the Sunday morning service mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, tr- the typical Sunday morning service and what's happening online. So I totally understand that. But... We everybody was kind of caught off guard a little bit with this. Everybody had to become audiovisual techs overnight, and then they had to rethink or think through again, rather, what it means to have a service and what the purpose of the service is. And unfortunately, we didn't get a lot of time to reflect on this before we had to quickly switch into other uh, modes of worship. And so we, we have seen a great variety in what is done in the Synod regarding what is streamed. And and that's led to a lot of confusion. So I do think that while this pandemic is going on and while we're locked down and while we're doing these online services, it's good to keep having these discussions. And especially after it happens to discuss the appropriateness of what was done, how we can do better. Uh, can we have a theology of streaming? Yeah, just by way of example, for the reasons Willie said, uh, I haven't included confession and absolution in my online service, which we do over Zoom. We just do matins. But on Monday, Thursday, I did have 
you know, the preparatory confession absolution service. However, I did, I think for the first time, the declaration of grace instead. Yeah, yeah I've done the declaration of grace uh, when we've used one of those orders for online. You know, uh, that's kind of surprising because I, I, I honestly thought the declaration of grace was in wider use in the Missouri Synod than it was. But I guess it's not as popular as I assumed. But, you know, who knows? It's the, it's the Missouri Synod. It all depends on region. The Declaration, congregation of, often declaration of Grace is a lot like the Nunc Dimittis in Divine Service setting one. Nobody wants to do it when you can sing, thank the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we did uh, the, first, the first couple of weeks, I just skipped the, the confession. I went straight into the introit. And then somebody from my congregation emailed me and said, why aren't you doing the confession? Why aren't we doing it? And so I, I thought through this question. I had already thought through it a little bit, but I explained it. And I, I, for me, it does come down to if I'm not hearing a confession, right. I don't feel comfortable speaking an absolution into a camera. And I suppose you could get, I suppose you could say if the absolution is just the kind of public preaching of the gospel, then it would be legitimate to just to just do it and to announce it in the same way that you might say the declaration of grace, right? But I'm not sure that that's really the purpose of confession and absolution. And this, I think that we, we should probably have more talk about just the history of where the public confession and absolution came from because it, a lot of the right. questions that we're asking here about streaming, I think this is not something that I know for sure, but my guess is that the same questions were asked about the public, the, the kind of general confession rather than private confession and absolution. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need not look at confession and absolution as a formality, as just a part of the service we must go through in order to get yeah. through the next part of the service. You know, it's meant to be a comfort and an assurance of the remission of sin. And uh, we want to make sure that that's there. So it's not a formality. It's not just a hoop to jump through. It is something that's that has true meaning and true efficacy when done according to the Lord's institution. And so that's why we grapple with these with these questions. But we are up on the next break. We do have more about streaming services coming up here on a word fitly spoken. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with the whole crew, Zellwin Heidi, Aaron Uphoff, David Appled, who is alive, and, of course, Adam Kuntz, here taking your user questions. So on the other side of the break, we talked about streaming, confession, and absolution. So the next question is more generally related to streaming. Should a stream service be considered worship, or is it more like a devotional or, or a meditation? A devo, as the cool kids used to say, Actually, no cool kid ever said that. As the people who thought they were cool listening to Newsboys in the late 90s and early 2000s used to say. Hey, we, I okay, like my I, Devo zines, okay? But go that's on. That's right. I went, I went to a synodical college, university, I should say. And, university. Uh, one, of, one, of the evening, one of the evening services was called Devos. So you're speaking uh, close. You're speaking against me right now, Willie. See, I think I'm an I, '80s band when I hear Devo. You, you forget that I went to uh, you know a, a a college steeped in the Campbellite revivalistic tradition. So I I am yeah. no stranger to these sorts of things and the societal pressure to attend. 
but did you ever cry there? <laughs> I don't think I cried when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and you had a mustache, so yeah. That's right. <laughs> well known facts. That was that was thousands of years ago and man was <laughs> also true. Then. And I already had a like a W two waiting for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> really is actually Tom Bombadil. <laughs> so it, anyway, <clears throat> how should we consider stream services? And I think that you know the, the thrust of the question is what constitutes worship? What is appropriate for an, for a streamed service? I suppose we're having to deal with the question of you know what do we mean by worship? You know what is involved with worship? Is there a a physical like a locality to worship? I mean, is that I think that's really kind of where the rub is coming in, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. can we can we worship the Lord? I I don't know. I mean, how do you guys want to frame the question? I'm kind of struggling well, here. So when you, I think it was a long time ago, back when Word Fitly was a blog and not a podcast. I think you had introduced <laughs> that. This, never uh, happened. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> we were in utero at that time, and I think you had had written some articles about the difference between corporate practices and uh, and private ones. And I think that sure. that that distinction would be helpful here. I mean, worship. We use that term quite broadly. But if we want to be a little more uh, specific in what we're saying, I think this question is like, is it a is it a legitimate substitute or maybe legitimate's not the right word, but everyone senses that there's something different about the streamed service versus being in being there in person and trying to trying to figure that out and put into words without denigrating a streamed service is kind of is kind of hard. But I mean, just invoking uh, the Zoan distinction here, it's not corporate worship because we're not corporately gathered together. That's that's really the main thing that I would say. It's not, it, it cannot be the same thing. Um, and the it, it's a supplement to the main thing, but, and and in some cases it's the best that we can do right now, but yeah, it's it's not corporate worship. But does that mean it's, it's bad? And that's not what I'm saying, but it's not the corporate right. worship. Yeah, service. it's a supplement and by no means a substitute for corporate yeah, worship. Sure. Yeah. You expect and, me to remember what I wrote all those years ago? <laughs> no, I'm just saying you're you are a helpful uh thinker <laughs> even if oh. you can't remember yourself. Even if I can't remember what I what I said. No, I yeah. that's that's actually now that I'm I'm thinking in those terms again, I think that's actually that is helpful what you're bringing out, David. This idea of distinguishing between what is public what is private and what is secret, I believe was the way I termed it, because public being what we do corporately as the the body, you know, normally the Sunday morning service, private being what we would do as a family and secret being what you do alone kind of a thing. Or maybe, you know, the uh, English government knows that you're having a conventicle and you got to meet in a cave. <laughs> Covenanters episode. Yeah, exactly. It'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen. But I, I, I do think that that is helpful when we're thinking about this because, in a sense, like you said, David, we're not meeting corporately. We're not public worship. In a sense, has ceased for a time. And I think what we're seeing is is a transition to a more private model, that kind of more family oriented model. Of, of worship, which is certainly a good thing, but I, I don't want to denigrate it and say that it's like only a devotion as if it's somehow inferior. It's just not what we would, it's not what we normally do on Sunday morning. Right. Right? And not what we're called to do on Sunday morning, I would add. Right. It's just, this is just where we're at right now. We'll resume, Lord willing, soon enough. All right. So the next question, uh, really quickly, how do you approach funerals or baptisms for members of the community as opposed to those within the congregation? So I think it's funerals for non-members or people generally out in the community. My general rule is if I've provided pastoral care for someone, like they're on the they're a non-Christian or a non-Lutheran who is maybe on their deathbed or on their way to becoming a Lutheran, but they die, I'll, I'll make that exception. But as a general rule, uh, just for members of my congregation is what I do. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think we've all pretty much have that kind of rule. If we're talking about non-believers 
if that's what we mean by those outside the congregation, then a funeral for a non-believer will necessarily look different from the funeral of a believer because faith is presupposed in the funeral rites. Now, we get into a trickier situation sometimes with Christians who are not members of the congregation um, because then we get into questions of are ecumenical funerals appropriate, which we would all agree that they're not. We would still be leading the funeral. We wouldn't, we wouldn't co-officiate a funeral with someone of another denomination, for example, and, and certainly not of another faith. I don't even know. I've seen, I've seen that happen, and I have no idea why or how how it works, but whatever whatever makes you feel good. Not seeing it in Missouri Synod circles, I mean, just just outside. So, yeah, that, that's something that does become become complicated. But as a general rule, members only, unless you've had some uh, some care there. And then there are exceptions that the pastor can make at his discretion. And we need to hopefully be able to trust the pastor's discretion there. Because it's it's often easy to cast aspersions in these situations, too. Again, agreeing to do a funeral is a different question of what does the funeral rite then look like. I th- really, I thought you were about to, to send out a, a appeal for people to order their It's Okay to Pray t-shirt from Word Fitly Spoken. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to clarify. I was not endorsing little, pastoral discretion for ecumenism. Right, right. Little, little inside Missouri Senate baseball. Uh, That's right. Of the- of the New York Yankees variety, but go on, please. That's right. A a 20-year-old a uh, debate that still largely defines us. It's very, very interesting. You, 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 now that <laughs> you've you brought up Yankee Stadium, the letters are already pouring in. I can feel my phone inbox yeah. dinging right now. <laughs> There's the general rule, and the ideal is the pastor's only burying his members who are Christians, and... That's what we pray for, that you all come to the faith so that we can bury you without having to squirm at all or without having to wince at your funeral. All right, next question. Okay, I'm going to read it as we have it, so bear with me. Can the priesthood of the baptized forgive sins as Jesus describes in John 20 or Matthew 16? Is it like Peeper says, Dogmatics, Volume 3, page 193, all Christians can forgive as Christ forgives, or as Luther says, primarily given to the office of the ministry, but any Christian in time of necessity, or like Reverend Robert Mays, Logia Volume 28.4, the priesthood only points to the unlocked door of forgiveness. It does not open the door by itself. It's worth noting at this point that this question actually is very closely related to the previous question that we had about the different views and doctrines of church and ministry. And this idea of, you know, who has the authority to do these things. So I don't know. I think we should at least keep that in mind as we approach this question. But how do you you want to tackle it? I think that it is constructed in a way that is already set up not to be answered helpfully. Um, And by helpfully, I mean in a way that actually clarifies what is at stake in the question. When you're asking a question like this in a merely procedural manner, what is the correct procedure? Is it okay for my uncle on a fishing trip to tell me that my sins are forgiven? That can be asked emotionally in favor of the uncle. That can be asked emotionally in favor of the supreme authority of the pastor who's wearing his clerical collar at all times, even when he's asleep. (laughs) Even while he's fishing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I think a way that is helpful is to ask, what is Jesus trying to accomplish in instituting the office of the keys in the church, which both the text of the small catechism and then any um, synodical explanation is going to identify as primarily exercised, like the Luther quote, but also in accord with Pieper, primarily exercised by men in the office of the ministry. Jesus is trying to accomplish the unlocking of heaven being made known to people, the distribution, the what Tyndale beautifully calls the preaching of the office of atonement. So that's what you're always mm. trying to achieve, always. And so to ask the question in a procedural way, I think is, is already to mistake what needs to happen. The procedure comes afterward. And the procedure is that normally it is the case that a Christian will hear this announcement verbally from another human being face to face, 
from his pastor. That's the normal way that these things are going to occur. That's why Luther says primarily. That doesn't mean that it doesn't occur in other ways or that other Christians don't know the gospel and can't communicate the gospel to you. And there are situations, um, I myself went through this in a different church body where the gospel was not preached by the clergy, that the laity knew the gospel and told it to me. Does that mean that I should go for private confession to the laity as a matter of course? No, because it's not primarily their calling, but it does mean that they are able to announce the gospel to another believer. I think that's very, that's a very good way of putting it. So We answered that more succinctly than I thought we would. Okay, <laughs> next question. What was good about monastic orders? Uh, they, they preserved an enormous amount of Europe's cultural heritage. Adam beat me to it, and I'm a little jealous that he yeah. got the answer before I did. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very grateful to them for that. And I don't know. I mean, I guess if that's sort of your, if that's your ball of wax, you know, whatever, go live on a mountain and do your gardening. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> Tend the bees. It sounds, it sounds like there's a lot behind the question. So I would want to, I would want the questioner to kind of explain like, you know, what's at stake here? Because this doesn't seem like much of a live option almost anywhere right now, but. Right. Like, look, I don't like Rod Dreyer. Yeah, this is this is the this is an anti Benedict option podcast, no question. Right, and then yeah. and so and I and I think we can actually take true monasticism and 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 divorce it from Dreyer's Benedict option, um, because the actual Benedict also assumed an actual society that would still go on existing with other Christians in it, not not a retreat from the world because we're spooked by it, but a retreat from the world to escape the passions. Yes, uh, a retreat from the world to focus on scripture, yes. And oftentimes focusing on disciplines that were good, like the preservation of culture, as you say, in particular, the preservation of scripture, which we would not have without the monks. That yep. is true. Right. Would, yep. would the Lord have risen, given someone to fill that gap had it not been for monkery? Maybe, but that's not the reality we live in, unless you're into the multiverse theory, which I'm not. <laughs> so... <laughs> is that related to Phantom Time or... yes so but we can we can very quickly you're covering your origins here so (laughs) i was there but (laughs) anyway so there are tremendously good things that come out of them we can historically be guilty of sensationalizing monasteries not all monasteries are equal they have different rules and different disciplines Ancient ones look very different from modern ones, but it's not all the diary of Maria Monk. You know, it's not this salacious horror show inside the monastery walls. It may well be for people's consciences, but they aren't necessarily the evil dark places that we made them out to be, at least the ancient ones. I want to be very clear there. I don't know what possesses a man to join the Jesuits today. I'll put it that way. Or even (laughs) when they were originally founded, but... Like a modern Jesuit monastery, I don't even I don't even know how the how a man comes to that decision. Why even live? Right. <laughs> You're looking at ancient monasteries and 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 early modern monasteries that are preserving culture. I think the basic plot device of Canticle for Leibowitz gets it right that the church, even when society falls, is the one that we that will rebuild society because it has the knowledge. Church, the church, and particularly the monastics, preserved the scripture, but they also preserved, in large part, the sciences, the good sciences, the good arts, and other disciplines. And so, if we reduce the the history of monasticism to merely spooky chants, because that's how we always put it in media, right? It's supposed to look ooh, kind of ominous, and guys in robes and guys not saying much, well, or or some, or in guys whipping each other or whipping themselves, then we do lose a lot of important things that come out of monasticism. Not that there aren't problems with it too. I mean, that's fine. Not that there aren't abuses and other things that happen. I think something to remember here too is that even the office of what would later become the papacy, and you know, I'm thinking especially in terms of late medieval, the, the late medieval popes, which you know Luther was reacting against, and rightly so, even the papacy didn't begin in, you know, these ominous kind of corners like it was, you know, I don't know, 
I, I think it it got to where it ended up through a series of historical events, through a series of compromises that were made, and you know trying to basically assert itself over and against a, a imperial authority. And so a lot of the claims that it made, which were contrary to scripture, and we would rightly condemn it as such, were made with a view of trying to express itself over and against, you know, what basically trying to survive. And I think monasticism does many of the same things in the sense that where it started, say, like with the, the Egyptian monks retreating from the evil of the world, which I think in a, in some sense was a good thing to do. Mm -hmm eventually ended up in a, a, a worse spot than it intended to. Right. I think there's a bit of a fascination with the kind of lay monasticism that some have today. And sure. I think that, yeah, that can actually probably work in a sense if you're willing to do it within your family and community. And by that, I mean, have, have your own daily times of prayer, deny yourself and deny your luxuries, but do it within your own family. Don't retreat from the culture. If you are disciplining yourself and trying to live with a little bit of asceticism, which I think is honestly good for the Christian, then let that be a light that shines before men. Let's not say, oh, the ballot box isn't going our way, so let's pick up our, our bulk uh, order of Rod Dreyer and, and go find some uh, cheap Wyoming ranch somewhere. Let's not do that. Or pick whatever isolated state you want. Sorry to the good listeners in Wyoming. You know, there are ways in which... And that's, and I think that's at the heart of a lot of people curious about monasticism is, man, I wish that I could dedicate my life to a discipline like that. And I, and I think that in some sense it is a noble thing, but can we capture a spiritual discipline within, say, a home with a, with a, a wife and children? And I think you absolutely can and perhaps should. It's not an extreme form of asceticism, but would any of us begrudge a family fasting together or praying together more than once a day or, or a quick prayer at meals? Is that a bad thing? No, not at all. I, I think it, a lot of this desire to pick up, you know, the, the title of monk or, you know, this kind of modern fascination with monasticism kind of is a, uh, that driving real slow by your ex-girlfriend's kind of house feel, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Zebra I mean, in the fire right at the end. It's a little LARPy. It is. I mean, because you, you end up wanting to have all of the, what you perceive as the glory of it without, you know, but while still trying to baptize it in some sense. And I, I don't think that you should. Mm -hmm. I think you should yeah, do exactly what you're talking about, Willie. So. Yeah. Because there can be a denial that's just a show or a denial that's just a LARP. But there can be an interior kind of discipline that can do, that can do well, too. We, we need to not be so caught up in the aesthetics of something, but in the heart of something. And so what is it to be more like Christ, for example? Is it to wear a robe and grow a beard? No, it's, 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 to, it's to love your neighbor. It's to serve God. It's to, it's to forgive. It's to believe in Christ and what he did and what he continues to do on our behalf. That's the essence of faith. That's the essence of Christianity, not only in, in outward trappings. Not that aesthetics are not important. We Our liturgical stance is very clear here. But as you say, people can become so caught up in sort of the image, the image of the monastic, and, and then they, they lose everything because that's not at the heart of you know, anything. If you, if you approach anything from purely externals, then... It's like putting on a cop uniform doesn't make you a cop. Putting on a clerical doesn't make you. You can buy a, a they'll sell you a clerical collar from any of the clergy stores. Won't even ask you for your ordination certificate. Um, yeah, uh, very well said. And we're, you know, now that we're wrapping up this conclave, you know, we've hit on this idea of personal devotional life in almost every one of these questions today, especially including the farmer's almanac. That's your, <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, I think that's um, that's the key here. We're all going through weird times. Uh, we're all giving up a lot of different things right now. You know, we're, we're being forced to to look inside ourselves more now, and also being forced to look inside of our own homes, perhaps uh, more than we have in a long time. And so, there's a lot to learn from there. Well, guys, we got to wrap it up. Any final words from the conclave? 
I wasn't here for the first first 20 minutes, but it's it's hard to believe that we've been doing this for 100 episodes. I know. It's crazy. It's good good times, though. Yeah. Aaron, good to have you on, bud. He's, uh, <laughs> He uh, he doesn't find it hard to believe that we've done a hundred episodes. Uh. Well, that's true. I guess right. it's easy for me to say, isn't right. it? And, and I didn't and, think about that. Zoe is seething over there. Sorry, Zoe. That's his every day. And I would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't say that Zellin is the one who cattle prods us and keeps us on the straight and narrow here. He does and keeps us on track here. Zellin is the heart and soul of Word Fitly Spoken. And Zellin, we thank you for a hundred episodes. What a guy! I'm. I'm glad to have you God guys you, on sir. for all of them. So. God bless you. You'll also notice he's very Norwegian, and I just gave him a compliment, so he's not going to yeah, be able to take it. Yeah, that was awful of you, to be honest. I, d- but, I don't know uh, what to do with it. <laughs> 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 well, anyway, guys, uh, thanks for 100 episodes. Hope to be here for 100 more. And from all of us here to Word Fitly Spoken, we absolutely thank you, each and every one of our listeners. Thanks for reaching out to us on social media. Anytime you have a question, comment, concern, whatever, uh, shoot us a message. We're, uh, we're happy to interact with you. So this has been A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, David Appled, Adam Kuntz, and Aaron Uphoff. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless.